I'm going to mute myself. I'm mute myself too. Yes, you guys should all be unmuted. And here we go. I'll do a countdown. Four, three, two, one, go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Salem Happenings, a show digging into the issues that you're all talking about around the city. We've got a lot to go into in this episode, but before we do that, let's introduce everyone. We're joined this time by De former city art planner Deborah Greel, Salem Gazette reporter Will Dowd, and from Salem State University, media and communications professor Rebecca Haynes, and retired admin academic administrator Gwendolyn Rosemont. I'm Dustin Luca with the Salem News, and as always, we're joined by the tall guy behind the curtain, SATV producer Alan Hanscom. So, there's been a wee bit of bustle in Salem as of late. We made it through October in one piece. Halloween happened without the city caving in. And then we also pushed through the rest of the election season just a couple of days later. Of course, as of today's filming date on November 10th, ballots are still being counted around the country and there's widespread allegations of voter fraud as well. But at least we had an easy to process outcome here in Massachusetts. Oh, and lest we forget, COVID-19 is still a thing. So the table set, the first course of the day is October. Street performers were on the common, lines choked the pedestrian mall and officials were scrambling but in the end things came together and the party at the end of the month never really came to be this wasn't really a normal halloween by any stretch how do we all think the city performed i think the city did angels could do no more you know the couple of times i ventured out i was able to kind of go the back way but i went where i was going and i came back i didn't get caught up in traffic I saw most, I would say I saw 99% of the people that I saw wandering around were wearing masks, were complying with what the city asked them to do. And my concern and, and is as, as for the merchants, and I know that's a different or a related topic, but I felt like the city did everything it could do. One of the interviews on one of the local stations was with two individuals from away who expressed that, well, they really felt bad that, you know, that the that Salem was discouraging, if you will, mobs of people from coming and that they understood that, but quote, we just had to come. So I think we saw a lot of folks perhaps who just had to come others who said we'll come next year, but those folks who just had to come had um, work. The city had a message for them that most of them chose to, with which most of them chose to comply if they just had to come. So I think the city did a marvelous job as well as it could. I don't think that they thought the numbers were coming in the amounts they did. And I think that's why we saw the mayor get on the press conferences and say what they did. But I agree with you, Gwen. I think they pivoted as quickly as they could, mm -hmm. not thinking that all of these people would come in, in droves. I agree that they were masked. Most of them were masked. Uh, during the week, it was pretty busy. I think a lot of the restaurants were able to, um, you know, they, they had the reservations. The other thing I heard was a lot of people came with nothing planned. So they get here and it's nine o'clock in the morning and everything sold out. I did speak to Kara McLaughlin uh, from the House of Seven Gables yesterday and she was saying that 
for them, they would normally see 2,200 people on a Saturday, they would see 250. Hmm. So uh, that was interesting in terms of, again, keeping people safe, her staff was great, mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. definitely impacted some, some of the nonprofits. Um, I would say that uh, the measures that the city did worked really, were really effective. And it, what, what I kind of, when I was looking over all of the, the, the measures that they were putting in place for Halloween weekend, I realized it was really just to make staying in Salem hard and entering Salem, or yeah, staying in Salem and entering Salem hard and mm-hmm. basically turning people away, turning them off from coming in because it was hard to find, you know, a parking spot. It was hard to, you know, you, you, the train stopped. The so train getting stopped. into Salem was difficult and staying here was difficult too. Mm-hmm. Um, I interviewed Tim McGuire, the owner of Remember Salem and uh, Why Nots. And, you know, he made a really good point. You know, Halloween weekend, a lot, a lot of times, it's just people want to be here for the atmosphere. It's not about businesses. They just want to be around fellow people who like ha- Halloween shenanigans, like seeing the costumes and things like that. So I thought that was a pretty, pretty um, astute point. Um, but, but I, the night that I filed my story for Halloween, it was over by like, I, I had my story done by like 930. That's unheard mm-hmm. of. I mean, I'm not, I'm not yeah. done. Dustin, you yeah. can probably attest to this too, was that, you know, I got my last sign off from the captain that I text with throughout the night to see if there was any, anything that was going on. And he basically like right after nine o'clock said it was a ghost town. Wow. So I think all of the press conferences, all of the sort of you know, uh, messaging and campaigns really worked. And I, I was, I was shocked to get that last text message. I don't mm-hmm. know about you, Dustin, you know, so. And for my part, I have a lot of respect for how the mayor and the governor and others tried to, to manage things that mm-hmm. both respected public health, as well as our local businesses need to do business that weekend. It was a very fine line to walk. Um, so instead of shutting everything down, saying, okay, come, but have plans. And we're gonna make it harder for folks to just get here without pre-planning. I thought that struck a good balance. I did see some backlash in some of the Salem tourism groups yeah. from people who disagreed with that and said, they should have planned this sooner. They should have known what was gonna happen. But even though it's Salem, I don't think anyone had a crystal ball. And I think that their responsiveness to the changing patterns really demonstrated their attempt to balance both public health with the interest of our small businesses that truly rely on Halloween tourism to stay in business year round. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just talk about the dark side a little bit here. Um, I did speak to some wait staff people and um, I don't know, because maybe the COVID is just keeping everybody hyped up, but they said the crowd this year was way, way harder to deal with and that might have been because every time somebody would go inside they'd have to wear a mask wear a mask wear a mask and um they said the tips weren't as good um and people were a little bit more belligerent um but that could have been a small percentage but i think it wore some folks out and um because they didn't want to be shut down they wanted to make sure that everyone that walked in to use a bathroom or get a drink or something had a mask on and so I, I think um, I'm hoping next year is going to be a little easier on everybody. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that certainly has come up throughout October a couple of times actually was kind of the the intolerance that a lot of these businesses were dealing with. Like uh, everybody knows about what happened yeah. at Kugo, for example. Steve Feldman over at Gulu had a really well publicized re- interaction with a customer who was, you know, upset. And then he came out and basically said, we almost had to call the police on you. 
Um, but one of the things that I kind of noticed is that the city seemed to have been kind of changing its message as the season went on. Going into August, you had a lot of people basically saying, okay, nobody's coming out this year. This is the year to actually, you know, be a tourist in your own backyard. And then when the tourists actually started showing up, that's when the city went, hold on, let's, let's pause mm-hmm. this. Year. Mm-hmm. So you saw the city itself kind of pivot a couple times. They had to. And I think that, and, and it may be the COVID madness of, my God, we've been locked up forever, but the the attitude of the people that were in this local TV interview of we had to come anyway, I think kind of reflected, uh, you know, y'all got this problem, but it's, it's about us, so we're going to be here. And so I think that's reflected in some of the incidents that you're talking about, that there was a bit of a devil may care it's your problem but we're going to we're going to be there anyway because we don't care and like i said i don't know if that's COVID madness because everybody's been locked up or just some kind of indifference that we're seeing but there was that attitude and re- reflected in some of the incident and a few of the incidents that's a good point gwen very good point yeah and then even beyond that we also had you know the tourists were coming out like uh hawthorne hotel uh house of seven gables we're both talking about how new york and new jersey were actually there you know where people were coming from mm. those were the number one and number two states massachusetts was number three which i mean to me was shocking to hear that there were more mm-hmm. people going to the gables from mm-hmm. outside of new england than from actually within mm-hmm. anybody have any comments about like halloween night uh rebecca did, you, did your kids go out did you uh did anybody go out trick or treat? You know, we actually really enjoyed the house tour that was online for Halloween in Salem. Um, so we actually led up to um, Halloween and on Halloween night watching one each of those videos. So that was a nice way to celebrate um, Halloween in Salem without physically going out there. And I think they especially enjoyed that first house tour that had all the glow in the dark, um, uranium glass and things set up. That was a lot of fun. They did a great job moving that online. And actually, this might be a good opportunity to kind of pivot to we were also looking at, you know, just basically, not just the city pivoting, but also a lot of businesses pivoting and things like that. Um, And that's an actually an excellent example, because, you know, usually it's Christmas in Salem, but they decided to do a Halloween, and then they decided to pivot the entire thing online. And then even on top of all that, you also had the Haunted Happenings Marketplace run by Creative Collective in the city that kept all the vendors going and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, what do we all think about all that? Massive amounts of work went into doing that. The online uh, vendor program. We also think because you had the EDRR, the Economic Development uh, Recovery Group, that was able to, that had been working together since what, I think March or April. So, you know, to have an organized group that could say, okay, what are we, what are we doing next? You know, John Anderson, Creative Collective, being able to get all of those, the, the artists to paint, uh, all those backdrops, uh-huh. you know, on the common, which were first of all incredibly delightful, and second of all to keep people safe. Um, so to be able to just be uh, easily uh, taking opportunities like that, know where you can do that, and then put them up within a week's time was was basically uh, incredible. So it's that upfront planning that group together that can say, "What are we doing now?" And that's really important because anyone who thinks that Salem was caught off guard and we may, the city may have been willing and able to 
uh, to, to shift and to move forward and to tweak stuff. But the planning for things related to Halloween began with that organization, with that group back three, four, five, six months ago. So the city was not caught off guard. These conversations about what to do in October had been taking place since the initial concerns about COVID. Well, also, and, uh, I really appreciated the idea that um, the free testing that was going on in October mm. uh, and also it's going on now and I think through December. So mm -hmm. I think the free testing, that's sort of a separate thing, but but I, you know, I wasn't putting myself at risk in Salem in October, but just knowing that I could just go and, and uh, get that test, I think was really important. And, and just one more thing about the Halloween weekend was that it was really a perfect weekend to a per perfect year to come to Salem for Halloween because it was sort of like the stars aligned, everything was perfect alignment. It was on a Saturday, it was on a full moon and a daylight savings time weekend. So yeah. I really think it's a missed opportunity and I'm sorry for all of the businesses and everyone that like literally was looking forward yeah. to it because it was a beautiful full moon <laughs> and it, you know, it's just, it's just too bad that you know, any other regular year, this would have been um, a banner year. Yeah. I mean, it's still going to be a good year next year. Halloween's going to fall on a Sunday. So you know that the 30th is just going to be a madhouse as well. And because Halloween's on the Sunday, that actually might even push traffic a little bit out to the weekend after, because there'll be a lot of people like, you know, Sunday night, I'm not going to go out or something like that. Yeah, and things are looking good for a vaccine, according to the latest news. So I'm feeling optimistic that we might be able to get back to normal by October. That would be really wonderful. That would be nice. I agree. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And actually, just, just to go back for a second, because I know we were just talking about the testing. I mean, how vital was that? Not just to have the testing going on six days a week at the high school, but also them midway into the season adding a downtown location as well. But granted, that's five days a week and not six. But that's that puts the actual COVID testing on the doorstep of every single downtown business that has employees that are getting exposed to COVID risks. That's true. And I have to say for anybody who hasn't been tested, um, you know, uh, think about it. And also uh, it's usually a 24 hour turnaround for your results. We're lucky that way. We've got some really good uh, labs that are doing that. Uh, yesterday, the line was quite long outside of Old Town Hall. But um, I have found that if you go in the middle of the day to the high school, if you're able to do that, usually there's no lines, no waiting. So you're right, there's two places to go, but just be aware that it might be somewhat of a wait sometimes. Take a book. Take a book. It's worth or it. Knitting. <laughs> or knitting. Or podcasts. Or just your cats. <laughs> yeah. You know, obviously with all of this, um, there was a ton of pivoting, not just within the city, but it seems like all of our businesses were changing how they operate. Like, for example, Wicked Good Books, having to do crowd control. That's never been seen before. Tours mm -hmm. saw a lot of adapting and even something like Horror Fest was able to pull everything off via a streaming platform and, you know, perhaps peaceful takeover of Cinema Salem. I mean, j just how amazing is our community mm -hmm. and its kind of resilience and ability to get through this while everybody's kind of strapped? I think Wicked Good Books closed though a couple of times because it got too overwhelming. So, so did so did coffee uh, Front Street Coffee as well. Right. Yeah. So they they made that decision when it got too busy. Um, the good thing is is that I was at Wicked Good Books on Monday, and uh, they're back. Everything's back to normal. And of course, you know, there's the hand sanitizer. But I'm going to make sure that, and we'll talk about this later. 
I'm going to make sure I support them in November and December as well. Mm -hmm. And I understand as far as the Salem Horror Festival goes that um, Kay Lynch, who, who runs that, um, they actually had a team of my students from Salem State just to help with some backup and support during the season. And it just sounds like moving to this online platform enables a much broader range of people to participate in the festival, right? Because if you think about it, in a typical year, the only people who would come to the horror festival are the people who are going to come to Salem. In this case, there was the opportunity to get the word out to just anyone who loves Halloween and anyone who loves horror, regardless of where they are. So it's an interesting opportunity to pivot, especially when you have someone who's so technologically savvy and figures out how to get a bespoke streaming system going, not just for the, um, the viewings, but also, you know, for um, celebrity author talks, all those, mm -hmm. all those ancillary mm -hmm. things that they have happened during that festival. So, you know, I, I think it's impressive to see the way that the folks in Salem took what they normally do and found creative spins that, who knows, there might be some of these um, online versions of things that could continue in a non-pandemic year as just a sort of add-on to bring more people into the fold. Yeah, I agree. Actually, Hamilton Hall Lecture Series is going to be doing the same thing. And so somebody out in Missouri that wants to listen to a particular author or speaker will be able to do that. It'll be interesting to see how, how they can grow an audience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's kind of the beautiful thing about all this is that we're no longer really just talking about COVID. We're talking about increasing exposure to all of the things that kind of make sound great. So like, even if, you know, we're still dealing with COVID issues going into next summer and things like that, you'll still be able to experience everything. And, and if, 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 if even people might actually be better prepared and have more robust programs instead of having to come up with something, you know, like John was having to do with the, you know, the buskers over on the common, just having to come up with something practically overnight. Mm. I will give a footnote, which is really interesting because I'm involved with the North Shore CDC in terms of looking at some fundraising right now as their leadership series. And what we're learning is that we, people are now pivoting back to snail mail because everybody's so tired of being on Zoom or you know webinars and all of that and so now you can look for your in your mail and uh, if you have a particular organization that you support you may be getting that snail mail from them instead of an email or a zoom call or something else so it's an, it's interesting how it's working on the other side of things as well any final thoughts on this before we move on i i think the outdoor dining is here to stay too <laughs> oh yeah yeah, I mean, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays even, out. Even if it, yeah. It'll oh, sorry, be interesting to see how that plays out over the course of the next couple of months as obviously things start getting colder. Yep. So, but I mean, I know I totally agree with you. I mean, it's, you know, Essex Street by the Hawthorne Hotel, half of it was shut down. I didn't, really didn't hear anybody complaining about that after it first got set up. And just the amount of outside dining, it seemed like people were really getting into it. And I think hopefully the restaurants are going to do something because I was talking to George at Finn's and, you know, the idea of like, can you bring your own blanket or would there be blankets for sale that, you know, they're monogrammed with your favorite restaurant. So hopefully they're starting to look at some creative ways uh, to bring, to keep people downtown because it is going to get cold, you know, and um, as I said, maybe hot soups are the way to go for these restaurants. I ordered sushi, it was cold, so it didn't matter. Hot soup and heat lamps, right? Yes. Hot yes. soup and heat lamps. Yeah. There's a motto. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm gonna uh -huh. I'm gonna bet we'll be able to do the outdoor thing until maybe maybe the end of January or 
or, or maybe early mid January before mm-hmm. really we start to see serious yeah. nor'easters maybe, or maybe after, after, after New Year's Eve. So. Or, I mean, it, you know, cause obviously Salem so sweet is like the perfect kind of, a oh, yeah, good point, yeah. like how beautiful would that be during a nor'easter? Oh, I know. So full disclosure, I actually bought two of those heaters, um, full-size heaters from a friend of mine in, in her basement. And that's how we're hoping to do Thanksgiving is outside on the patio with heaters. <laughs> yeah. And actually, you know, before we move on to our next topic, just a bit of a plug that, you know, these businesses are all moving through a tough time. There are programs launching this month from Creative Collective, Destination Salem and Main Streets to kind of encourage everyone to shop local and kind of try to keep the love going as we're going into the holiday season. What is what everybody mm-hmm. think about this? I was a Main Street. Yeah, shop local, Gwen. Don't shop local. Yeah. Come to Salem and shop. If you live in Salem, shop and support your neighbors and friends and colleagues and the city. And it's such a walkable city. You can go from shop to shop and get all your mm-hmm. shopping done. I think it's great that they're continuing to promote that. Excellent it's price actually, points. Yeah. yeah, good price points. And also, uh, if you make a list and you you look around, like there's, we do have some great shops. We really, really do. And um, we have a lot more uh, number uh, of clothing shops too, if people are looking for that. Um, we don't often think of Salem as having clothing shops, but I was in two yesterday. Uh-huh. I was in actually die with your boots on and, and got a nice flannel shirt. But um, yeah. also these are the businesses that support the nonprofits throughout the year. Uh-huh. They support the little league teams. Um, we know that the money gets spent in our communities as opposed to taking it out of our communities. And so when you're supporting the Wicked Good Books, you know she's gonna be turning around and going to a restaurant down the street or you know what she's doing. So yeah, definitely shop local. And it's charming too. And that you can buy almost anything you want in Salem. You mentioned clothing, um, almost anything, jewelry, you can buy in Salem. So it's, everything is available. Almost everything is available right here. Yeah. And then something else, even on top of that, and this is something that I actually did with my parents last year, you can gift Salem. You can basically give a couple of gift certificates to like maybe one of your favorite restaurants and one of your favorite mm-hmm. shops and say, okay, go to Salem, experience Salem. It's still going to be here. It's going to be safe. Yeah. Or a membership to the PBD Essex Museum or the House of Seven Gables, you know, yeah. memberships are, are a great way to go as well. So yeah, gift certificates, definitely. Yeah, and I love how you mentioned PBD Essex because perhaps one of the most amazing things to hit the city this season was two new exhibits at the museum, a rotating feature focusing on Salem's numerous stories and a massive exhibit on the witch trials, the first of its kind at PEM in, God, the last couple decades. And we'll have a tour of the witch trials exhibit in our next episode, but for the time being, I feel like this was a bigger deal than many people realize, and PEM has even talked about it, the idea that Salem is returning to the museum under new executive director. I imagine that this is something that we all have feelings about yeah will and i visited the other day and interviewed um uh, the librarian and yes i i i was pretty blown away by it first of all if anybody has a chance go on their website and listen to the 20-minute podcast which really orients you very well with diana cardin and Mm -hmm. chip van dyke And it's a great way to orient yourself. And then you go into this exhibit, which is really profound because I think one of the things that they bring home is that these were 
mostly women, accused of witchcraft. We made sure we were talking about that. And the human story behind this um, was really, really profound. And, um, you know, and it really gives you that connection in a really heartfelt way. It's it's a very emotional exhibit, very emotional exhibit. Yeah, and, and uh, during, during the interview with Dan, there was a moment where I was just like, cause I had interviewed him before, but I, I just found myself pinching myself because when you're growing up as a kid in middle school and high school, a lot of these objects you see in your textbooks um, growing up. So, you know, I loved history growing up and just to be next to, you know, like the painting, you know, of George Jacobs at his trial or, you know, and then being at like, you know, his actual walking sticks that are that are kept uh, by the, you know, in the in the PEMS collection or, you know, seeing an execution uh, warrant. It's just really interesting to see all of this stuff kind of put together. Um, uh, and I encourage everyone to see it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing to have a local world class museum that can do local history the way that they're doing it here. Mm -hmm. And even beyond that, it's, it's a story that hasn't been told in so long. I mean, it's, it came up in the interview, which we've all had a chance to see so far. Mm -hmm. that, you know, the last exhibit on the Salem Witch Trials was back in 1992, which was famously the right. year that Essex Institute and right. PBD Academy of Science merged. So that's what formed the PBD Essex Museum that we have today. And ever since then, there actually hasn't been an exhibit like this. But one of the things that was really profound to me when I got a chance to walk through it, um, you, you hear over the years about these different artifacts that are within PBD Essex's collections and things like that. Like, and I can't remember how many times I actually heard somebody talking about, you know, like a door panel or part of, you know, one of the wood timbers from one of the walls or the floors or something and how PBD Essex has it in their collections. And then to walk into the exhibit and actually and see those see things it. right there. In front of exactly. Yeah, I think it's what sort of like what Will was saying, when you read about things, especially as a kid, when you read and see the pictures in your textbooks, and then you're able to go and see, wow, that's that's the real thing. That was somebody's door or whatever this is. It's just so, it's such a powerful emotional thing, particularly for children to make that connection between this picture and the real thing that's there in the exhibit. And, 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 and like Rebecca, you're not going to get this anywhere else. These things are not mm -hmm. anywhere else. They're right here in, you know, in, that's yeah. within the PBD and the PEMS collection. So mm -hmm. that was a lot of fun. And also to hear this current president talk about a witch hunt, uh, to talk mm -hmm. about what that means, uh, and then to go to this exhibit and connect it to, again, people that were falsely accused and what was happening. Um, and to listen to the podcast and to listen to uh, Roberta O'Connor, who's head of, I think it's the justice, um, the group that used to be, help me out here, what was the group um, from the Witch Trial Memorial? Voices for uh, voices, uh, voices Against Injustice. injustice. And, and just even talking about what's happening even now in terms of relating it to uh, the, the persecution of people today. So, mm -hmm. yeah. It's timely. So it's a great, great Well, and I, I do think that Salem's commitment to inclusivity, our No Place for Hate Committee, all of the initiatives in that regard to promote inclusivity, equity, social justice, really do link back to that horrible history of persecution. Mm -hmm. So it, it's an important reminder at this particular moment in time as well that we need to continuously 
reaffirm our commitment to those values, right? It's not something you say once and then it's set forever. You have to continuously look back so that you don't repeat the mistakes of the past, however distant. Because you see the group think that happens that leads to things like the witch trials, you know, the group think. So to, you know, to be aware of that, yeah. Um, we did learn that um, it, it will be there until April. Um, as I said, I hope people get to the next time watch this interview, which is really compelling. Um, but they can't, uh, they can't have these materials out. They're too fragile. Yeah. So, um, you know, hopefully at some other point, maybe a few things could come out, but it's a, it's a pretty, uh, you know, the paper, once, once that ink fades, it's gone. So, you know, I just want people to know that because a lot of times everybody's saying, well, why can't you leave it out there for every day? And, and they just really can't. So. Yeah, this is the first time in 30 years that they've displayed them since 1992. Yeah. And just the time that to have it coming up, and actually this is an, uh, another great segue. Uh, today we're wrapping mm -hmm. up the quick discussion on how the elections actually played out. Uh, thousands of residents voted by mail or early in person, and at the center of all this is a city clerk's office that made it all look easy. And now we're at the end, three days removed from Vice President Joe Biden becoming the projected president-elect. Before we discuss this, I've got some numbers to share from City Clerk Eileen Simons. Uh, with 32,498 registered voters, Salem had 17,268 mail-in ballots go out in the weeks leading up to the elections. That's 17,000 printed, stamped, and mailed envelopes in just a couple weeks' time. Then 10,198 of those things came back before voting day. Another 5,363 voted early in person. So with 23,838 cast, more than 65% of those who voted did so before election day. And then even beyond that, another 44 ballots have come in since the polls closed with the deadline of this coming Friday, November 13th. So they're still working on the election, even though we think it's all over and have the results in hand. So be it the Herculean efforts of the city clerk's office to make voting happen under the pandemic or just thoughts on the outcomes, be it the presidential side, the questions, you know, how are we all feeling about the latest exercise in selecting democratic representation? Uh, well, I, I, I wrote some notes down before this and, you know, everyone's talking about them, them being surprised that, you know, we've seen such a historic turnout in Massachusetts and just in the country in general. And I'm not surprised at all because, you know, we expanded, you know, voter registration. We, we expanded, you know, access to the ballot. And this is stuff that, you know, the League of Women Voters and Common Cause and all these organizations have been basically saying initiatives and, and measures that we need to implement to get more people to vote. So, you know, I'm not surprised at all that we've had, you know, uh, a record turnout because all, you know, not just Massachusetts, but other states have, you know, they mailed in, you know, they mailed registered voters applications for their ballots. You know, we've extended the window for people to register to vote. I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised at all. And I hope it's here to stay. I really do. I really so, do hope it's here I to stay. So. So I'm wearing white and my pearls in honor of <laughs> Tuesday. And um, I voted early and walked in. It took me literally about 10 minutes. I had to sign something because I had been mailed a ballot and, and walked out. So on top of watching 10 hours in other states of people voting, I felt really fortunate to have it the process so incredibly, incredibly easy and dignified mm -hmm. and safe. I agree because we walked into the high school on the last Sunday afternoon 
that that it was available. And we were out in under 10 minutes. We walked in, we did what we needed to do, we voted, we walked out. It was so quick and so easy. And I, I just feel tremendous compassion and concern for folks who literally were standing in line for literally hours. But I am so proud of them and so thankful that they did. But it was Salem was easy. Salem was easy. Again, speaking to how this city just anticipates and organizes and gets stuff done. And even on top of that, and I know this is something that Will can certainly attest to being a man of print deadlines. Um, we had the results in Salem, was it before 11 o'clock that mm -hmm. night? I mean, it, they got us the results really quickly. And then there are mm -hmm. states that right now are still counting. So, mm -hmm. Well, they, 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 they uh, opted into the option of having a tabulation center, which was the heart of, of, city, of the city, basically, which was the, the, uh, um, the city council chamber. So what basically was is the secretary of state allowed cities and towns to um i believe it was the secretary of state but they the the state allowed cities and towns to um start counting their ballots before election day um unlike you know mm -hmm. city like like states like um pennsylvania where they had to wait until election day don't you feel as though that we should have a federal mandate about all states sort of have the same process because this feels as though um, you know, state to state, I understand that they can they can run them and control them. But in terms of thinking about maybe if every state decided to, uh, you know, count their ballots early, um, you know, that we wouldn't have this sort of hanging on on this. I still don't understand why they haven't called Arizona officially. So you know. Well, and, and my understanding is it's not even necessarily counting ballots early, it's processing them early, right? So I, I believe the holdup in certain states like Pennsylvania, um, where I do have some family, and so I've been paying close attention there, um, has to do with a decision to not open the envelopes, confirm the signatures are okay. You know, there's processing that if you wait until election night to do probably triples the amount of time it takes to count. Hmm. So I, I think that I've been hearing a lot about why don't they count early, but I think in many places it wasn't counting early. It was beginning the processing so that on election night, all they had to do was count. That seems very reasonable to me. Yeah. And you and you mentioned Arizona, but one thing I, I just pulled it up on CNN on one of my side monitors, Arizona, or not Arizona, Alaska is still sitting at only 52% of its precinct reporting, right. which at this point, we're a week away from the election. So, and you know, that, I mean, not only is that not declared, it's like half of the state's ballots haven't been counted. Mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. So any final thoughts before we wrap up today? Well, hopefully this administration will do something about voter suppression and start opening up many, more, many, 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 many more polling places. You know, we have four years to change this uh, to the next election and it needs to change. It needs to change now because waiting in line for 10 hours or having one ballot box for 4 million people is unconscionable. So hopefully, hopefully that will change. I agree. There's very little evidence of any meaningful voter fraud. What the big problem is, is voter suppression, which should be yes. fraudulent. Mm -hmm. yes. yeah. I think it concerns me. It concerns me that um, I'm not, we, we've also, we all celebrated last weekend. It concerns me that people are not anticipating 
the next whatever six, seven, eight weeks between now and the middle of January that people are treating this as though, okay, we're done, the election's over, it's been declared. Um, I w people need to be alert and aware and expect, expect that this is not the final word. I agree. And, and even I, on top of all that, it's all good. No, no, I have, I have a family member who absolutely does not believe that he's lost. Or even beyond that, I mean, the election isn't even done yet because, I mean, you bring up January and I just, just for full disclosure, when we're talking about waiting lines that are 10 hours long, that's not in Salem, that we're talking about places like Georgia where there's going to be two uh -huh. Senate runoff elections, uh -huh. uh, what, January 5th or something like that, right. you know, beginning of the month. Uh -huh. So we've still got... There's still a lot of um, voting that actually hasn't even taken place yet. So have a long ways to go. Yes, yeah. we do. All right, that's a wrap for today's episode. For Deb, Gwen, Rebecca, Will, and Alan, thank you for joining us. Have a safe and healthy Thanksgiving. And thank we'll see you. The next Absolutely. And we'll see you all the next time things are happening in Salem. Great, thanks. All right, and I think we're good. Okay. Thank you, Jeff, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was good. Thank you. We, we did have good. some background noises, um, but I, I can I can work on those. Yeah. And um, excellent, excellent discussion. And we and, came in at about thirty-seven minutes, so oh, we stayed on schedule the entire time. Dustin, how did you send the file to me last time? Do you remember? What's the easiest way for you? Um, what I can do, especially because this is going to be a Zoom recording, um, so it's going to be super, super light. I could just put it into Google Docs. Okay. okay. Perfect. And then and I'll, I'll, and I'll put that in um, chat too, so we can all watch it. Okay. Great. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. You all are awesome. See you next time. Rebecca, go have lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy Take family over here. Okay. Later. <laughs> okay. okay. Bye bye. Oops. Bye, all. Bye. bye, everyone. Adios. <laughs>